This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. It is great to have you here with me today. Libby is off today enjoying Victoria Day. She is back tomorrow. Hope it's been a nice long weekend for you so far and that you have not been affected by Saturday's abrupt and massive storm. Hundreds of thousands of hydro customers in southern Ontario have lost electricity. Some still have not gotten their power back. And the community of Uxbridge remains under a state of emergency. Now, imagine you're an older disabled person or an individual on a fixed income. How is the food in your freezer if power is still out? And are you able to get out of your building or home, your house, in the event of an emergency? For instance, if you're in a high rise and the power is off, how do you get out without an elevator to assist you? Luckily, the weather has been cooler, so air conditioning is not a necessity at the moment. But if these scenarios describe you or someone you know, we would certainly appreciate if you would like to share your story. The numbers to call, as always, 416-360-0740 or toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Joining us to talk about this topic, as well as the Ontario election, our Monday Zoomer Squad, which this week is abbreviated. David Kravitz is a regular contributor and the chief membership officer at CARP, as well as a vice president here at Zoomer Media. And Anthony Quinn is CARP's chief community officer and Ontario election lead. Both Bill Van Gorder and Peter Mugrich are off today. David, Anthony, thank you both for being here on this holiday Monday. Thank you. Hi, Hi, Jane. Good to be with you. David, let's talk about the emergency nature of the storm first and the ripple effect for older people. Well, I think older people are, you know, generically more vulnerable in all these situations, whether it's this kind of storm or, um, you know, blizzards and ice storms in the winter. And I think um, two things occurred to me while I was watching it unfold. One, I was glad for the uh, emergency um, notifications ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it gives you an opportunity to plan a little bit. And I, I think also the fact that the storm mainly hit um, relatively built up areas increases the likelihood of people having a neighbor or a friend or a loved one uh, either nearby or who can get over there quickly. Um, you know, after the, um, after the storm has passed, so I think that in many cases, the, the people who are most vulnerable do have people nearby. But it does show you that you need to uh, have uh, an emergency plan available, particularly if it's an elderly parent. Uh, if, if you've got a parent who is uh, elderly or disabled, there should be permanently in place a plan um, you know, who's going to do what, who's, it's another, it's really an extension of caregiving. Who's going to do what, who's going to take in food, who's going to go uh, pick them up, maybe take them out of the residence temporarily. Um, all those plans need to be in place. And this uh, storm reminds us of that need. That is an excellent point. And we are hearing from climatologists that there will be more of these severe weather events. So uh, certainly getting prepared as much as possible ahead of time is uh, prudent. And and you're right, David, that was really great on our phones when we got that uh, message from yeah. Environment Canada about the severe thunderstorm warning. Right. Anthony, what would you like to add to that in terms of how this type of weather event affects older people and how we move forward? Yeah, the federal government really has made an effort to alert all of us to our own personal responsibilities and self-reliance. And they're encouraging everyone to have 72 hours of uh, food and water and batteries and flashlights and all the things that we would need to fend for ourselves until emergency responders can come to us. So that 
72 hours is the window that uh, it, it could take someone to come if we're in need during an emergency. So that uh, I would encourage everyone to visit the government website, getprepared.ca, and oh, all of the lists are there mm-hmm. on what we have to do for ourselves. What kinds of things are on that list, Anthony, now that you've looked at it? Yeah, it's it's food and water, mm-hmm. uh, canned food, uh, uh, a can opener, uh, water for 72 hours in, in smaller bottles, the uh, batteries, a flashlight, uh, and they also say having a, a local network, as David was talking about, a local network of connections that can look in on you as well. So uh, having that all set up in the event of emergency, not uh, at the time of emergency. And it goes without saying, I mean, you mentioned, David, about having a sort of a caregiver rundown when there are events like this. But checking in on older neighbors and family, always a good idea. If you've been in a neighborhood for a long time and you know the residents, you you want to do a little bit of a check afterwards. I I think you do. And I think that um, part of the problem here, of course, was that the storm did a lot of physical damage should people, nine people, I believe, were killed trees down. Um, I don't, didn't hear many, you know, older people, you know, out for a stroll during the storm, obviously. Mm-hmm. But when there's this kind of physical damage, uh, it becomes even more important, uh, you know, for people to look in and, and make sure everything's okay and get, uh, even temporary help so that the person isn't, doesn't remain isolated. Um, that to me is the priority. You know, thinking about this high-rise scenario, uh, one of my colleagues here at the Zoomerplex was saying that his father-in-law is on the 10th floor of a building where they lost their power for quite a bit of time after the the storm on Saturday. And so they'd offered, you know, do you want me to come and get you and you can come stay with us? And he was fine. And luckily, we don't need air conditioning because it's cooled down. But but in terms of somebody being up in a high-rise like that and having an emergency situation... Uh, Anthony, 911 would still be the option, right? Because the paramedics could do the stairs even if an individual can't get down the elevator. They could, but it, if those resources are, are very limited and if everyone is experiencing the same emergency, we can't expect 911 to be responding in the same way they would on, on these one-off occasions. So during a real emergency where large numbers of people are affected, uh, we can't always rely on 911 to come and move us where we have to be. So I think that's, again, down to self-reliance and planning ahead so that we know, uh, should there be uh, an occasion where the power is out or we we can't get out of our own building, that we're prepared to, to shelter in place, as it were, until such time that emergency can get to us. And we have to be ready with the food, water, even in the wintertime, with the blankets and the type of things you need to stay warm and stay safe. David, were you affected at all by the storm? No, we weren't. Uh, we, you know, other than, you know, rain, we didn't have anything. But I, I, I do want to piggyback on something Anthony said that's important is that, um, power outage and heat in the winter, um, I think there needs to be a permanent plan for that. So I think if you're a caregiver to a, an elderly relative, the same way as you do a safety inspection, or you should do a safety inspection of where they're living, um, it doesn't hurt to have a permanent power outage plan in place. Do they have a flashlight? Do they have some canned goods? Do they have um, uh, adequate water? Um, uh, Because even without trees falling down and high winds and and people literally being killed, an extended power outage, which is not infrequent uh, at this time of year, um, leaving them, you, you don't want them uh, you know, fumbling around in the dark, the risk of fall inside mm-hmm. is greater. The risk of uh, other things falling is greater. Um, they just need to have a backup plan in place. And it's worthwhile, especially when we head into the season where you have summer brownouts or blackouts, to go over that with them, uh, walk through the facility, be it a home, be it a high-rise, whatever it is, and say, okay, where's the... Uh, Where's the candles? Where's the battery? Is there a flashlight that's, uh, whose batteries are all charged up? You don't want to be scrambling to do all this uh, when it happens. You want to have it ready ahead of time. And what about getting money back, Anthony? Um, oh, and I should ask you as well, were you affected by the storm? Sorry. No, my phone alarm went off just as the clouds were darkening uh, here in Oakville, where I live, and it was uh, blew, pa- blew past 
quite quickly, but I did see some remnants of neighbors' trees down and some shingles off, but nothing for me, thankfully. Yeah, no, same in my neighborhood in Etobicoke. We had a lot of branches down on our property, but nothing that... Uh you know, hit hit the house or hit the cars or anything. But certainly when I did a drive around the neighborhood, there were some big trees that had come down. Uh, Absolutely. But in terms of getting money back, Anthony, you know, I'm thinking about food that spoils in the freezer or, you know, just not having hydro for a couple of days. Are there any kinds of repercussions people, especially on fixed incomes, can go about uh, maybe getting some sort of rebate? Not that I know of, Jane. I, and I recall back to the ice storm of a decade ago, perhaps, and the amount of loss uh, uh, that, uh, that perishable goods had cost the entire, uh, between Ontario and Quebec, everyone's power was down and everyone was scrambling to to take advantage of the food before it spoiled. There's, right. no, there's no system in place that I know of, but I think, uh, you know, this is when generators start to be uh, sold and people are planning ahead for the eventuality of, of a power failure and being able to heat their homes and keep their refrigerators running with uh, some backup generators. So right, an and of well. course, at the very least, you can go to the local convenience store and pick up some bags of ice to just kind of to put inside the freezer. If, if they're open. Yeah, if right. You, if you're really an uh, older person and you are infirm, this again speaks to um, having, a, uh, if you're fortunate, you know, uh, children, adult children, other friends, having a plan available in that same ice storm that uh, Anthony was referring to. Our, uh, we, our neighborhood was hit. We had uh, trees down all over. And my next-door neighbor, who was well into his 80s, um, a tree uh, and a, an electric line fell across their front lawn. And I remember neighbors going in right away to make sure that they were okay. Mm-hmm. So they were they were safe. But also their adult children soon arrived um, and took them out of the house safely and into their homes. I think I don't think they were back in there for two or three days. So it became an inconvenience, certainly. It became something undesirable, certainly. And I think they, they did kiss a lot of the food goodbye and that right. money. But at least they were safe and they were looked after and people were watching out for their welfare. And I think that's really the priority here. We will switch topics now. It's our Monday Zoomer squad. Uh, David Kravitz, as always, and today Anthony Quinn joins us. Let's talk about the election, gentlemen, and uh, phone lines are open as well. Have you taken part in any of the early voting opportunities? Have you already cast your ballot? Perhaps you would like to share. Radio is anonymous. Share with us who you voted for, which party you voted for, and why. Uh, it would be very interesting to get an early feeling for what's going on there with our Zoomer radio listeners, mature audience, the vast majority of whom go to the polls in every election, whether it's municipal, provincial or federal. Numbers to call if you'd like to chat about the election, 416-360-0740 or one 740 David, let's uh, first talk about how COVID has very much affected uh, this provincial campaign with both Andrea Horvath and Mike Schreiner isolating at home. And Andrea Horvath today is not making any virtual appearances either. And some were observing yesterday that she was having trouble breathing and and speaking. So COVID may be um, having quite an effect on her. Well, I think it's certainly having an effect on her ability to campaign the way she planned to. I'm not certain it'll have uh, a dramatic uh, impact on the vote um, because you then have to argue that there's all kinds of uh, voters out there waiting, uh, eager to be convinced by her, and she couldn't speak to them, so they stayed home or voted for the other parties. And I'm not sure that that follows. Uh, I, I suspect it's more of a impediment to uh, her campaign than a material change in the outcome. Right. Oh, no. And, and, but certainly, I mean, she is, uh, I think she's around 50, uh, 55 to 60. She's in that age range. Oh, yeah, she is. She and, is, and yeah. it just shows, you know, fully vaccinated, Anthony. And, uh, you know, and she may be having a tough time of it. Well, I, I recovered from a bout of COVID myself just over the Easter break. And 
I wouldn't have been able to campaign for three or four days. I know I was down down for the count in bed for the, those three or four days. So I, I can commiserate with her and with Mr. Schreiner as well. I spoke to him on the morning that he was uh, tested positive for COVID as well, and he did have a little sweat on his brow mm-hmm. and, and was. I, I thought it was just the effects of the 24-hour-a-day campaigning. But uh, I think it will uh, perhaps bring them a little bit sympathy as people are being aware that they're ill or they're under the weather. Right. And people paying attention to them a little bit closely. And just as a fellow human being, Anthony, and hearing your story now, and presumably you were also fully vaccinated, I mean, you know, I would, if I was a friend or family member of Andrea Horvath's, I would want her to rest today, you know, to take it easy. Well, she has her, her friend from the National uh, New, New Democratic Party, Jungmeet Singh, out on the road for her today. So. Yeah, I think that's great. That's great. Yeah, that is just uh, just such a great gesture on his part. All right, let's go to the phones. And once again, if you want to talk about the election, who you voted for, undecided perhaps, numbers to call 416-360-0740-1866-740-4740. Ray in Jordan, Ontario, welcome to Fight Back. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What I'm calling about is the voters' cards. Yes. If you turn your voter card over to show you where your advanced polls are, or if you turn your voter card over to show you where you're going to vote, there's no postal code on them. And mail that has not got a postal code does not direct you to anywhere that you can go and vote. I've been after this for over seven years, and I'm getting tired of sending in cards to Elections Canada or to the province and say, get this corrected. So what does it, put, so in your you case... your address in a GPS, uh-huh. you don't go to those addresses. You can go to the United States, you can go to Alaska, you can go to Saskatchewan, you can go anywhere. So what does your, what does it say for advanced uh, polling on the back of your card? Well, it just says you can vote May the 19th to the 28th yeah. at the 11th. Elizabeth Street Pump House, yes. 447 Elizabeth Street, Grimsby. There's no postal code. But why do you need the postal code if you if it's if, in your... If, I don't, if I'm a newcomer to an area, uh-huh. or if, uh, if I've just moved here, I wouldn't know where the pump house was in Grimsby. Okay, well, presumably you can put that in your GPS. I mean, I'm not defending. They should no, have the... No, no, you yeah. can't, ma'am. Oh, you can't? You put that... You put that in without a postal code, and GPS won't tell you anything. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for bringing that to our attention, Ray. All the best to you. Let's go to Skip in Toronto. Skip, go ahead. Yes. You're there? I'm here. We are all ears. Okay. I will tell you two things. I like food because I know his brother, and he seems to be I've done a good job so far. And I will hope that he get back in there. And Skip, why do you think that Doug Ford has been has done a good job as premier? Because as a premier, when I call him or he calls me or whatever, he always have a good response. All right, Skip. And people have said that about the Fords. You know, uh, Rob Ford um, sadly died a few years ago, but everybody has always said that, that that both the Ford brothers have always returned all of their phone calls. That has been quite unique to that family. Uh, and I believe Michael Ford, the councillor uh, who's running now in the provincial election, I believe he sort of lives by the same policy. Um, I think we're back to David now uh, in terms of what we're what you're hearing from the election, the issues. We definitely want to discuss the CARP 5 issues and whether they're getting attention. What is your impression with uh, just about a week and a half to go, David? Well, barring some insane surprise, if you're the leader in the polls like Ford is, you want an uneventful campaign. You want there to be no one single burning issue or scandal uh, that galvanizes all the opposition. Um, and he's got that playing field that he wants, and he's quite happy to keep it low-key. And, uh, uh, you know, I think it's unfolding exactly the way he wants. And I think the CARP-5, which focused very much on health care, which is very needed, I think 
the parties have figured out, you know, the right things to say. Nobody wants to be seen to be indifferent to health care, certainly. So they've all got, you know, we'll throw a billion here, we'll throw a billion there. They've all got some verbiage that covers it off, and uh, the test will be what happens afterwards. Anthony, your thoughts with a, a week and a half to go? Yeah. Well, as open as Mr. Ford is in that great retail politician, what we're hearing across Ontario from our volunteers is that the PC Party of Ontario candidates are not that forthcoming and not participating in in local uh, all-candidates meetings and really uh, sticking to door-knocking, but not joining the traditional, typical uh, opportunities for voters to meet and compare candidates. So we've heard that right across the province. It's really interesting that you brought that up because when uh, Doug Ford was in Niagara the other day, a reporter asked him that very question. Why are your candidates in this region refusing to do radio interviews, newspaper interviews, taking part in local debates? And he just said, listen, we're out there door knocking and that's, you know, they're talking to the people and that's good enough. And that might be to David's point that uh, the less opportunity you have to be heard, the less chance of something going wrong, perhaps. So with that in mind, then, is in terms of what CARP members are looking for, and just to review the CARP 5, fund better home care, transform long-term care, drastically cut wait times, make vaccines more accessible, fund fitness for seniors. In light of that criteria, what are CARP members feeling, David, about re-electing Doug Ford? Well, I think that uh, our membership (coughs) distributes pretty much the, the way that the general population does. I don't think there's a, a dramatic spike one way or the other. I think it, it follows slightly, maybe slightly favoring the progressive conservatives. But I think that we have succeeded in making health care a dominant issue. I won't say it's the only dominant issue. Uh, we have succeeded in getting all parties to uh, verbally commit to changing it up so that it's noticeably better with some benchmarks for improvement. I think it is moving onto the center stage, but it's going, make no mistake, we need more members, we need more vigilance, we need to keep the pedal to the metal all the time because uh, it'll be too easy for the uh, politicians to retreat back to the way it was before once uh, the election's over. Anthony, I'll get back to the phones here in just a moment, but to keep the flow going, uh, what about your thoughts on that? Well, while we're talking about health care, uh, I don't think there's enough conversation about the you know, the tragic outcomes in long-term care homes over Agreed. the last two years. Yeah. It seems to be shuffled away and everyone's looking forward, but we're not out of COVID. The system hasn't been fixed and there's ongoing deaths in long-term care homes related to COVID. So yes. I think... Uh, calling on everybody who is uh, talking to their candidates to really keep that uh, you know, need for change in long-term care and the transformation that CARP is calling for in long-term care homes to protect the residents now, not five and ten years down the road. Let's go to Emmanuel in Brampton. Emmanuel, welcome to Fight Back. What would you like to add? I like, I like to add, uh, you know about Ford? Yes, and you'll want to turn down your radio. It'll be easier for you to think. <laughs> What? Oh! Turn down your radio. There's a delay. Yes, and you'll so want to turn w- your radio. So with, yeah. yeah, turn it down. And uh, what did you want to say about Doug Ford? You know, Doug Ford, he got a good attention too, okay? And he did a lot of good things. But uh, the problem is now we got a lot of seniors and, uh, and to spend $10 billion on a highway... He could wait. He could wait for that, and uh, uh, and the other guy wants more hospitals. That's what we need. I'm a senior, and uh, you know, like, and he do do nothing for for the senior this time. Nothing, uh, you know, like, uh, can he wait to spend to don't spend the. $10 billion on the highway. Thank you, Emmanuel. You know what? I take your point, and I'm going to ask our Zoomer squad uh, about that. This Highway 413, the PCs are the only ones advocating for it. And Emmanuel, like many older people, are concerned, should we really be spending $10 billion on this highway uh, versus uh, issues around health care, long-term care? Uh, David? Yeah, if you want to win those seats, 
mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a vote counting exercise. I'm reminded, and maybe some of our listeners will remember, uh, uh, the Davis ditch when uh, Premier Bill Davis stopped the Spadina Expressway at Edlington right. instead of building it all the way down to the lake because it was going to go through, uh, I don't know, Davenport, some of those like those uh, mid mid city. A constituencies, and they figured out it was going to cost them three or four seats that they didn't want to lose. It was a tight battle right here, so they stopped the expressway and that this absurd truncated road from 401 down to Edlington going nowhere. But those are the kinds of political calculations that they make all the time. I don't disagree with the caller. I mean, um, what's that highway going to do compared to the urgency of uh, could we use though, that $10 billion better somewhere else? Especially in healthcare, um, sure, I, I completely agree. But it's a, it's let's be honest, it's a brutally uh, uh, pragmatic political calculation. And I, I think, Jane, a successful diversion from the track record of the government, if that's what the opposition is fighting uh, in the uh, on the hustings, then if they're talking about I'll build a highway or I won't build a highway, we're not talking about what's happened over the last. Uh, four and a half years uh, under this this leader. So it's a great uh, political move, I think, to talk about a highway that may or may not be built. We will leave it there for this week. Uh, I thank you both for your time, especially on this Victoria Day Monday. Thanks so much, Jane. Happy holiday, everyone. Yes, and enjoy the rest of your days. Anthony Quinn, CARP's Chief Community Officer and Ontario Election Lead, and David Kravitz, CARP's Chief Membership Officer and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Jane, for Libby and still to come here on Fight Back, what would you do if you saw blood in your urine? Do you know that this is the primary symptom of bladder cancer? What you need to know about Canada's fifth most common form of cancer coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is back tomorrow after the long weekend. It's that time of year again, the month of May, when we're reminded about bladder cancer. Who's most susceptible to this below-the-belt cancer? What is the main symptom and how you can protect yourself against it or act quickly if you may have it. If you're a new listener to Zoomer Radio, I have been an advocate for Bladder Cancer Canada since 2015. I went to this organization of incredible volunteers three years after my mom died of bladder cancer, looking to offer my service in memory of my mom, my mom Sandy. And here we are seven years later. If you have bladder cancer or have survived bladder cancer, please feel free to join the conversation, or if you have questions from our panel of experts, whom I will introduce you to in just a moment, please give us a call, 416-360-0740, or toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. We also have a panel of experts joining us today, friend and world-renowned uro-oncologist Dr. Alex Zlata. Dr. Zlata is the Director of Uro-Oncology at Mount Sinai Hospital, a professor in the Department of Urology Surgery at the University of Toronto, and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. Also on the line, Tony Kornakia, Chair, VP of Bladder Cancer Canada, and a bladder cancer survivor himself. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Jean, for having me. That was Tony and, and Dr. Zlata. Have we got you there? Yes, good morning. Good afternoon. Hello, Sorry. hello. Great to hear your voice, Dr. Zlata. Uh, I'll ask first uh, the first question to you. If you have any good news to pass along regarding research and treatment since last time we talked. Well, I have more than good news. I think I have great news. <laughs> good. <laughs> to, to share, and I have to say that... Uh, Nearly every year and every six months, something truly uh, outstanding comes uh, for patients. Um, you remember a couple of years ago that was the event of what we call the immune checkpoint inhibitors that basically were redirecting our immune system to find the tumor cells and to kill them. 
And we've seen now and presented since, I would say, a couple of years, but mainly uh, this year at the ASCO and the AUA, um, a new class of treatments, which are uh, called antibody-based uh, targeted and it's an antibody drug conjugate, and basically those drugs target specific targets and antigens that um, are present on tumor cells. And the most known now is called EV, or it's N4-tumab vedatin, but for most physicians and patients, it's EV. And that targets a... Uh, Nectin form, that's a sweet name of the target on the bladder cancer cells, and has been shown that even in patients who failed, so to speak, at one point the chemotherapy didn't respond even to the immunotherapy. It can salvage and prolong the survival of many patients. And there's another um, target which is also shared with breast, which is TROP2, and the drug has a uh, even more complex name. It's a Sazutuzumab Govitecan. I'll spare you the names. But these new drugs are um, effective even after several lines of treatment and are, are moved early on. And so the bottom line is that uh, research moves very, very fast and uh, with great advances. Oh, this is such fantastic news. Thank you, Dr. Zlata. I wanted to start out on a positive note because so many people in recent decades, you know, things are changing, but in recent decades, people have lost their lives to bladder cancer um, and have not always survived. Uh, Tony, uh, it's nice to chat with you for the first time. Uh, you have quite a story. Uh, please, if you would share it with us. Uh, yes. Um, so I, I've got to say I've benefited from the research that Dr. Zalata and his colleagues have done. Uh, I was first diagnosed uh, in early 2014 um, uh, and had surgery to scrape out my bladder, uh, and it had uh, had come back later in that year. So I had um, uh, four surgeries in total and a number of failed uh, sort of uh, treatments, uh, BCG being one of them that, that didn't work for me. Uh, and over those first two years, my cancer had actually spread to my lymph node system. Um, and the prognosis wasn't very good by the end of, that would have been December or late 2016. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, um, you know, took a look at different treatment options and, and one of those checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy drugs that Dr. Zalata just talked about back then was uh, was on clinical trial that, that I happened to um, be chosen for or qualify for. Um, and, and I've got to say, you know, seven, eight years later now, I, I, I am, uh, there's no evidence of disease. It took a year for that, the drugs to work. I'm still on that clinical trial, and I benefited from uh, from all that research. Tony, um, I, so, I'm so happy for you. Truly, this is this is it's it's a miracle, really. It is. I consider I consider myself hitting the jackpot. There is no better lottery to win than than what I did. So, uh, it is truly amazing. I've seen such amazing work being done since 2014 um, with all the advances in in. Treatment options, um, it has come uh, a long way since back then. Yes. Uh, you know, my mom passed away in 2012, uh, and her bladder cancer had also metastasized. But at that time, and that's only four years before uh, you were offered this trial treatment, there was nothing for my mom at that point, just to, you know, to maintain as much quality of life as possible. It's truly amazing. And Dr. Zlata, how many Tonys have you seen? Like, how many people have had their bladder cancer spread and, and be cured as a result of these new treatments? So, honestly, uh, I wish I could say all of them, but the sad reality is that probably about a quarter to 30% of patients will really respond to those kind of treatments. A um, little bit more response, and then, uh, you know, a subset only, unfortunately, will be what we call long-term survivals, and, and, and Tony Kornacka is truly, you know, the, the poster child and poster boy of 
of how you should continue to keep fighting yeah. and, 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 and exploring. I think the, the, the big thing now is that many groups throughout the world are looking at two avenues. One is to target avid part of the bladder cancer, and these are the antibody uh, drug conjugates, which are very hot now in, in many diseases, not only bladder. And the second thing is try to understand who are the Tonys of this world. So how do we know that a patient will have such spectacular and, and, and an amazing response? And that's uh, a lot of studies which are going that way. Right. Uh, let me give out the phone numbers again. If you have a connection with bladder cancer, if you would like to ask a question of Dr. Zlata or of Tony Kornakia, his is an incredible story. Numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Every year, Bladder Cancer Awareness Month falls in the month of May. And, uh, you know, there certainly has been an increased amount of awareness uh, since I began my advocacy with Bladder Cancer Canada seven years ago. Uh, but there are still people out there who don't know whether they are at risk for bladder cancer, what the symptoms are. So let's go back and talk about the basics. Dr. Zlata, the risk factors associated with developing bladder cancer. So sadly enough, and that was presented just one month ago, the awareness about the relationship between smoking and bladder cancer is way less among the population than between, for instance, smoking and, and, and lung cancer. And so a simple thing as smoking and its impact uh, should, should really be made aware for, for the population. Um, there are also uh, professions who, who are at high risk, uh, those, for instance, firefighters, people close to industries with fumes and dyes. Right. And there's also some genetic factors, unfortunately, especially um, families where there's a, a defect in the repair in the DNA. That's called the mismatch repair gene mutations who now are clearly at a little bit high risk. So we'll know more and more about the risk factors in the years to come. Uh, and we're getting some calls, so we will go to the phones here in a moment. Uh, Tony, I'll put this to you since you have a personal story. In terms of signs and symptoms, blood in the urine is the main sign of bladder cancer. Was that consistent with your diagnosis? It, it was. It was. Um, it started off as blood in the urine, and then it uh, developed with pain when I went to the bathroom and, and urgency uh, to go to the bathroom. Um, so, so I did have the classic symptoms uh, of bladder cancer when, well, just before I was diagnosed. And in, yes, I was just going to say it's really important, that, you know, especially if you see blood in your urine, is, is to make sure you get that checked out uh, uh, by your family doctor, or more importantly, by urologist. And it is so important to the earlier you catch this, the better your chances are. I would say. And that is absolutely true. And a lot of women, because bladder cancer is the 12th most common cancer for women, whereas it's the fourth most common cancer for men, a lot of uh, women uh, are told by their doctors, my mom included, that it's a urinary tract infection. So we'll put you on antibiotics and the blood goes away for a while, then it comes back and another urinary tract infection antibiotic. And, and Dr. Zlata, it's true, you really have to push your GP uh, to refer you to a urologist, right? I would say that when you see blood, this clearly has to be investigated. And you're absolutely right. Sadly enough, we've seen way too many ladies uh, who have been treated for mumps for urinary tract infections without any further investigation. And so I think that when people present with blood, they, they need to be investigated, period. Let's go to Deborah in Toronto. Hi, Deborah. Thank you for calling Fight Back. I love you people. Oh, well, we love that you're out there listening. Thank you for calling. I'm calling. I don't know if my problem with my urine relates to this, but I'm up almost every hour of the night, maybe two times an hour, going to the washroom. But when I go, I have to actually push it out. It won't just come out. I have to, you know? So you have the feeling to urinate, but you but nothing comes out. 
Right, and I have to push it out, though, and sometimes only a couple of drops come. Dr. Zlata. So, um, you know, with all the limitations of all of us who don't want to do any consultation through the phone, so to speak, yes. I think it's important to understand that um, what you described, Deborah, is something that can perfectly happen. People think that only men wake up at night. That's not true. A lot of ladies wake up at night, and men have prostates that are working as an outlet obstruction. But in ladies, there are many other reasons, like, you know, um, the, the, the bladder that goes down a little bit and uh, obstructs a little bit around the urethra. And so, very obviously, uh, in your case, I would strongly suggest that you, you seek advice and, and, and are investigated by a urologist for sure. Okay, Deborah, ask your family doctor. I already have, yeah. but when they test it, they say they don't see anything wrong, but somebody's supposed to be sending me where I'm going to get, they call a scope, yes. put up me to see if they see anything that's stopping, but... I said, I never have that problem in the daytime, just in the overnight hours. Well, so you've got to make sure that they set up that appointment for you to get a scope. That's what Dr. Zlata does. Yeah, well, I've got it on my little data there, but I don't give up. I just keep calling Good. and calling whether Good. it's a holiday or not, you know. Yeah. Okay, Deborah. Um, that's that's the way to go for sure is to see a urologist. Thank you and all the best to you. And I hope to see you Saturday, lady. Oh, I will be here for doors open. Yeah, I will. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'll look forward to seeing you as well. The Zoomerplex is uh, part of Doors Open this year, if you want to uh, check that out online uh, to find out more information. Um, Dr. Zlata, Tony, we're just going to take a quick break here. I want to get back to the phone calls. I also want to talk about the different types of bladder cancer, as well as the support that Bladder Cancer Canada offers bladder cancer patients. We will do all of that next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns tomorrow after the long weekend. It is Bladder Cancer Awareness Month, the month of May, and we are speaking with Dr. Alex Lada, Director of Urooncology at Mount Sinai. He's a professor in the Department of Urology Surgery at the University of Toronto and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. Also with us, Tony Kornakia, Chair, VP of Bladder Cancer Canada, and a bladder cancer survivor. Let's talk, uh, Tony, are you comfortable talking about the different types of bladder cancer? Because uh, that needs to be identified right away as well once once it's determined that you do have bladder cancer. Uh, absolutely. Um, there's, uh, I guess, three or four main types of bladder cancer. Um, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer uh, is, is when uh, there is tumors in your bladder uh, that don't, uh, I, I guess, penetrate the uh, the muscle wall, uh, uh, and it is contained into the bladder, uh, and that um, you, you know, Dr. Zolda is better at talking about that, but you know, follows a certain set of treatment options. Yes. Then there's muscle invasive bladder cancer when the the tumors in the bladder penetrate through uh, through the muscle wall. Um, I I'm considered a metastatic bladder cancer patient. As the the cancer is spread outside of uh, outside of the bladder, um, and then um, there's also upper tract disease where it is um, um, uh, again. Doctor Zlata may be better to explain that part. Right. Uh, I was going to ask you, Doctor Zlata, in terms of uh, diagnosis, which of the different types of bladder cancer uh, is most curable uh, upon early diagnosis. So, I mean, the, the most curable are, are the tumors, like Tony just mentioned, which are not muscle invasive. So, basically, the bladder has got several layers, and as long as the tumors are confined to the first layer, the lining, if you want, of the bladder, or what supports the lining, but don't go deeper into the muscle, most of those tumors, or nearly all of them, are amenable to a first treatment, which is local and you basically shave the tumor to get a sense of its grade and its depth, and then you also remove it completely. Um, there are 
some cases where it's close to impossible to remove it completely. That's called carcinoma in situ because it's a very subtle part of the bladder which is completely infiltrated. And But even then, some of the treatments are uh, very, very efficacious. Um, not always. Um, Tony just mentioned that in his case, we understand it didn't, but most of the time it does. Now, the big change, however, is that even for tumors which are penetrating into the muscle, the standard of care in the past had been to remove the bladder with uh, chemotherapy. Uh, and we have presented uh, a study at ASCO and now, uh, which I think I already spoke about it in, in the past, and which is available uh, in Canada, where instead of having to remove the, the bladder in specific conditions where the tumor is infiltrating the muscle but it's unique, it's le less than three inches and doesn't push on both ureters, the tube that connects the bladder to the, the kidney. The study uh, and where we merged the experience from Toronto, Harvard, and Los Angeles on over 1,000 men and women showed that in specific conditions, you can spare the, the, the bladder by resecting the tumor and then placing radiotherapy with a little bit of chemotherapy, and it's equal, equivalent to removing the bladder. So even at the same time as we have moved with all these new treatments, which are amazing and which allow uh, you know, men and, and women like Tony to be completely disease-free, we've also seen a decrease in the aggressiveness of the treatments, even for some types of, of muscle-invasive bladder cancer. So we're really going along those two, two large avenues. Wow. That's very interesting. Um, just incredible what's been going on in recent years uh, to improve treatment and to improve quality of life. Because, Dr. Zlata, once you lose your bladder, uh, you basically have a bag attached to your body, right, where the urine comes out. And you, you be, people become quite adept at doing this, but it is a big lifestyle adjustment. Yeah, so, I, I, well, you're absolutely right. I think what has come front and center is that what physicians think is important may not necessarily be what patients uh, think. And I think, you know, groups like Bladder Cancer Canada and, and the, all the work of Tony and the others is essential. More and more research plays the opinion of the patient center, not only the opinion of the physician. Uh, but nevertheless, you're right. Most of the time, the bladder removal would be associated with traumatic changes in the quality of life, although people adapt. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, a word of caution, it doesn't mean that because you, need, you lose the bladder that it's always a bag. There are neobladders where the, the bladder can be replaced by, by some bowel. It depends right. on the location and the type of, of tumor. Right. Um, you mentioned Bladder Cancer Canada, and our time is running short, as always seems to be the case. Uh, Tony, let's talk about Bladder Cancer Canada and the support that this incredible organization, primarily of volunteers, offers people with bladder cancer. We, uh, we are a passionate group at Bladder Cancer Canada. Um, I, I've got to thank Dr. Zalata for introducing me to them back in 2015, uh, and they were a great support for me going through uh, through my journey. Um, and, and we provide a lot of resources to patients that are, are newly diagnosed, uh, with, uh, with different guidebooks, um, just to give, uh, information on, uh, you know, different questions to ask. Because when you're first diagnosed, there's a lot that you don't know, mm -hmm. uh, that you don't know. Um, we've got peer to peer support groups where, um, you know, everybody's cancer journey is unique, but we try and, uh, you know, pair you up with a patient that's gone through um, the cancer journey with similar circumstances to yours. Uh, and it's, it's you know, you get to ask the questions of somebody that's gone through it. Um, we, we support um, different educational webinars and, and you know, in-person support groups when that's, uh, when, you know, when that's allowed or when we can get back to that on a regular basis. Um, uh, as a whole and with different partners and different uh, partner organizations, we've funded almost uh, $2.8 million in research. Yes. Uh, you know, you talk about quality of life. We're working on a, 
a quality of life research program uh, as we speak right now. And a lot of that is the the funding that comes from the annual walk uh, toward the end of September, right? Yeah, so we're, we're gearing up for, for the September's walk again. Uh, and that is a, a big source of funding for our organization that does great work. Uh, that's all about patient support, patient awareness, and, and helping patients through that journey. Well, you'll be happy to hear, Tony, that I registered my team again for this is the eighth year, I believe now. Uh, so hoping that, uh, and every year it's incredible, the Zoomer radio listenership, uh, their donations to my little team. And, and I know it all makes a difference, right? A positive difference. Jane, your support is extraordinary. Um, it, it means a lot to Bladder Cancer Canada. Well, um, and it yeah. goes to a big cause uh, helping patients. Yeah, it really, everybody who gets out there and walks or makes a donation, doesn't matter how small or large, uh, it all aids in the cause. And you've been hearing, if you've been listening this last half hour, you hear uh, how the research and the treatments have improved dramatically, even in recent years. And uh, it, it, it just really is such an incredible advocacy, Bladder Cancer Canada, what the people do there, the people who donate their times, uh, their time. I can't say enough good about this organization. So I guess there are a couple of uh, websites we should give out, Tony, uh, so people who are patients can get in touch with Bladder Cancer Canada and also to find out more about the annual walk. Uh, So bladdercancercanada.org is our our website, and and you've got all the links to the walk, uh, to the the different patient resource material, um, and there's a, a discussion forum on there as well. So it's, it's full of a lot of very informative uh, uh, information on there. It has been a pleasure for me. I thank you both so much for your time. Thank you very thank much, you. Jane. Love support. Tony Kornakia, Chair VP of Bladder Cancer Canada and a bladder cancer survivor, and the great Dr. Alex Zlata, world-renowned uro-oncologist, director of uro-oncology at Mount Sinai, professor in the Department of Urology Surgery at the University of Toronto, and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. I hope that was an informative segment uh, for you. Certainly, awareness is is the key to beating disease. Absolutely. Uh, Libby will return tomorrow, and uh, as has been the case in the past Tuesday, she will have the Recovering Politicians panel off the top of the show after the new news. Stay with us here on Zoomer Radio for the number ones at one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.